Well, good morning. Uh, happy Mother's Day to each of you that qualify. Um, <clears throat> we don't have a Mother's Day message uh, for the mothers today, but I do have a poem uh, that I'd like to recite before we go to our actual time in the Word. And <clears throat> this is a, a poem that was published in 1865. And Many of you may not have heard the whole poem or remember it, but I, I would say that probably most of you for sure will recognize the last two lines of each stanza. This is a poem written by William Ross Wallace. It goes like this. It says, Blessings on the hand of women. Angels guard its strength and grace. In the palace, cottage, hovel, oh, no matter where the place would that never storms assail it, rainbows ever gently curled, for the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Infancy's the tender fountain power may with beauty flow, mothers first to guide the streamlets, from them souls unresting grow. Grow on for good or evil, sunshine streamed or evil hurled, for the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Woman. How divine your mission. Here upon our natal sod, keep, oh, keep the young heart open, always to the breath of God. All true trophies of the ages are from mother love impearled, for the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Blessings on the hand of women, fathers, sons, and daughters cry, and the sacred songs mingled with the worship in the sky. Mingles where no tempest darkens, rainbows evermore are hurled. For the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Let's pray as we open our time in the Word. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much for our mothers. We think of their love toward us. And uh, Father, as we go into your Word, we'll be looking at love and, and what that means and 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 how it should be demonstrated in our lives. And I just pray that you'll guide and direct now, uh, that hearts are open to the truth, uh, that I may speak as you would have me. I just pray your blessing in this time, in Christ's name, amen. Our text this morning is uh, a con continuation on in uh, the book of 1 John. And um, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 2, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. Uh, and, but I encourage you to get your Bibles open, as I will be looking at some other passages as well. I think the text uh, 7 through 11 you'll find in your bulletin. Uh, but I want to backtrack just a little bit because it's been uh, probably six or eight weeks uh, since we've uh, looked at First John. Woody has done his his series over the last several weeks and uh, greatly blessed all of us. And we find ourselves back in this study of 1 John. And I want to start by reading 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. John writes this, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... In him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know we, we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself 
to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you've heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, as I read through this passage in 1 John, uh, what John has talked about up to now, it seems pretty clear to me that John is a black and white kind of guy. Things are cut and dried. Uh, and he minces no words about uh, what he believes to be the truth. Uh, he confronts his readers and us with some very bold and pointed statements. He says, you know, here's the way it is. You're either in the truth or you're a liar. It's pretty pointed, pretty bold. You're either walking in darkness or in light. You know, it, it, it's one way or the other. Pretty clear to me that John says unequivocally that, you know, if we profess to be Christians, he says in verse 3, by this we may know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. He goes on later in, in, in the end of verse 5 and he says, by this we know that we are in him. And he talks about abiding in him. And, and what he's meaning there is, you know, if we profess to be believers, there is something that's true about that, and that is that we all belong together. We are part of this living organism that's hard for us to, uh, to, to understand, really. But God's Word teaches us in, in John chapter 14, verse 20, Jesus said this, in that, in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. And so, somehow, how that all works, I can't tell you exactly, but if we are in Christ, if we abide in Him, we are all part of the same living organism. And if we say that we belong in this living organism together, that we abide in that, certain things should be true. He would, John would heartily concur with the apostles, uh, the apostle James, the Lord's brother, and he said in James chapter 2, verse 14, a, a very misunderstood and misapplied verse. Uh, James said this, he says, Of what use is it, brethren, if a man says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? This is a rhetorical question. And, and, and the answer to that is a resounding no, absolutely not. John says the same thing. He says, the one who says, one who says he abides in him, ought himself ought to walk in the same manner that he walked. You know, we can say anything. We have to understand something that a profession of faith does not save anyone. Profession of faith does not save anyone. Having faith saves you. So we talk is cheap. We can say whatever we want to say, but... The proof 
will be demonstrated in, in how we behave and how we act. And John and James aren't saying that we're saved by what we do. We're not saved by walking as he walked. We're not saved by doing good works. But as a result of true saving faith, we will always demonstrate those characteristics in our life. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to walk as as he walked, capital H. I'm not going to walk that way perfectly, nor will you. Woody has mentioned time after time over the last several months, it's not about being perfect. It's not about perfection. It's about the direction of our lives. You know, so if you look at yourself today and you say, okay, how am I doing being obedient to the commandments of God compared to the way I was a year ago? Does that, have I made progress? Does that look a little better? How am I doing as walking as he walked? Is that the same? Is it slipped backwards? Is it, you know, this is the point, here's where we should be headed. It's the direction of our lives. And, and John says this, if it's true that we are in him, we ought to be willing and wanting to obey his commandments. So Kevin is, in his uh, Sunday school class over the last couple of weeks, has talked a lot about Christian liberty. And it boils down to this. It boils down to not just doing the right things, but it's the motives behind them. With God, it's always more important as to why we do the things we do, not the things we do themselves. So John and James, all these people would say, you know, we want to do these things. Why? Because we love God. We're grateful. We want to prove our loyalty to him because of all he's done for us. We should choose to be obedient. By this we can know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, John would have been speaking at that point not necessarily about a specific one, but as we get to our text this morning, he is going to focus in on one in particular, one particular commandment. And so in verse 7 he says this, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him, capital H, and in you, because of the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Well, what is it? Is it an old commandment or a new commandment? Make up your mind. What is it? What's it supposed to be? This can be a little bit confusing. Well, the old commandment that John is referring to dates way back yonder to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And that kind of tucked away back in there, it's really not, you know, not really standing out, if you will. In Leviticus 19, 18, the word says this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And later in, in uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verse 39, we looked at that this morning in Sunday school as well, Our Lord repeated this commandment as when he was asked, what is the great commandment? What is the most important one? Of course, first one is to love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, and mind. And then he says the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the old commandment. Whether John's readers were converted from the Jewish face or converted uh, converted Gentiles, they by this time would have been familiar with, with those passages. That's the old commandment. He says it's, what he says? He says it's the, it's the old commandment which is in the word which you have heard. 
He says, on the other hand now, he says, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him, capital H, and, and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, John is going to say, okay, this is new. It's not new as is it came out of the blue somewhere, but it's new in its application or its emphasis. And it's more specifically targeted, if you will. And John's going to say, this is the new commandment. He says, you shall love one another as I have loved you. In John chapter, the book of the gospel of John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, our Lord says this, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. You shall also one another, verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So here's the new commandment. He's narrowing it down. While we're supposed to love everybody, in specific, what John wants to emphasize, you know what? If we say we are in him, guess what? It should be clear to everyone that we love those that are in this body with us. We should love those that are in this body with us. This is a new emphasis. Emphasis or application is more specific. He goes on, verse 9, he says, The one who says he is in the light, capital L, and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Now, he doesn't say the one who hates his brother is not a believer because you wouldn't have a brother at that point. He wouldn't be your brother at that point. But he says the one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness. He's walking in the darkness right now. He's, he, he, he's, not, he's out of bounds. He's not where he ought to be. Kidding himself if he thinks that way. He says, yet the one who loves his brother abides in the light. And there is no cause for stumbling with him. Love, hate, darkness, light. We need to make sure that we understand our terms. Several messages ago when Chris Ward was uh, dealing with this business of light and darkness, you know, he did a very good job of explaining what those, what those terms meant. You know, love stands for everything that is good. Love, uh, I'm sorry, light stands for everything that is good and wholesome and safe and secure and warm. Darkness, on the other hand, stands for all that is evil, foreboding, dangerous, cold. What about love and hate? The word for hate literally means to despise. It means to have malice or ill will toward another. And it expresses itself in a lot of ways Bible talks about those in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. It talks about deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. In Ephesians, it talks about bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander as well. All those are expressions of ill will. And again, that is the most important thing to God. What goes on here? It's ill will. You know, we hope, obviously, if there's hatred, it can, it can express itself in physical violence. And we don't often see that happening. But one thing we often see within our body, expression of hatred or malice or ill will, is in our speech. 
Paul and Peter talked about this, talk about gossip and slander. You know, we tend, we tend to tear down others with our speech. And we would say, well, we'd respond and say, well, it's all true. It doesn't matter if it's true. Does it fit this template that Paul gives us in Ephesians 4.31 where he says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for, what, edification, for building up. So to give grace to those who hear, according to that need of the moment. Does it fit that template? doesn't matter if it's true. All gossip and slander it has as its sign. It's ill will. It's designed to tear others down and elevate us in others' eyes. Well, what about love? What about love? What's that look like? We saw expression of love yesterday, if you were here, in a great way, marvelous way. We saw how joy is in the midst of sorrow. That's an outpouring of love. It's tremendous. It's great. What are we talking about? We're, we're not going to talk a lot about the outward expressions of that love. We, we see that in certain places. Again, God's always interested more in the why rather than the what. If you want to have a good idea what the Bible means when it's talking about love, you can look at Jesus' life from beginning to end. It, it, it's, it's filled with the demonstrations of that. One of the more famous passages in the Bible is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 called the, you know, the book of love, the, the chapter of love, if you will. It's recited at a lot of weddings and so on and so forth. And I would suggest to you that if you're interested in knowing more about that particular book, that particular uh, chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians, um, go to Redeemer.com. And Tim Keller, a number of years ago, did an outstanding series on the book of 1 Corinthians. And in there, uh, he really does a, a masterful job of preaching to 1 Corinthians 13. But we want to look more at the mindset. What's in the heart? That's the most important. So what does love look like? Mrs. Kristoff and I had our first date a number of years ago in the end of July. And by November 26th of that year, we were married. And, you know, during, during those courtship times and the uh, weeks and months after we were married, you know, we could just kind of... <sighs> Is that what we're talking about for love? No. No, what we're really talking about is what would happen later on when there would be kind of a reality check and when she and I came to the realization that maybe we weren't perfect after all. And there's this, there's this tendency to have some buyer's remorse. How do we respond in those situations? This is what I'm. This is what I want to talk about. So I've got a few ways that a few ways for us that I'm going to define love, and I'm going to give you my definition. And this comes from the Christoph Collegiate or Elementary School or Preschool or whatever it might be dictionary. This is this is my definition of I, what I believe the Bible is talking about here as far as love is concerned. 
all the terms, incidentally, all of the terms that are translated as love in the verses that I'm going to reference all come from the same root, all come from the same place. So how do I define love? In this context, I want to define it this way. Love is a determination or a conscious choice to desire the greatest good for another and to show affection for that person irrespective of that person's worthiness. It's a determination. It's a conscious choice. Strong's in his concordance said this about it, and I I like this definition. He says, it's a deliberate assent of the will. It's something we choose to do, choose to love others, I would say at times in spite of the way they are rather than because of the way we are. It's a choice. We see that expressed in the Bible in so many ways through the life of Christ. There's one passage that really speaks to me about how this love was a choice, and I'd like us right now to turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Paul wrote this in verse 6, Romans chapter 5. He says, While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's a mind-boggling statement. It doesn't say, you know, when we were, we were almost there. Well, we, were, we really had things going the right way. Things were going really good. And we just needed a little push to get us over the top. It doesn't say, like, for example, in LDS's uh, theology that says, after all we can do, Christ redeemed us. What it says is this, well, we were still helpless. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says this, we were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were, how helpless is that? How helpless is that? We were dead in our transgressions and sin. We were helpless. We weren't going anywhere. And he says at the right time, Christ died for the for the good people, for the fine upstanding citizens of this of this community, the ones that are admired and respected? No. He said for the ungodly. That defines every one of us. For why was still helpless at the right time Christ died for the ungodly? Verse 7, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man some would dare even to die. Now, we think, by definition, we can't prove that, but we think that were we given the choice of trading our life for another, we might do that. There might be some that that we would say, I will make that choice. I will decide. I will make that decision that I will trade my life for another. Member of my family, perhaps a dear friend. I don't know. There might be some of those that we would say that we would do that for. But Paul is going to say, he's going to separate, he's going to separate us from God. While we might say we might trade our life for another, What's God say? Verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
while you and I were in open rebellion against God, while we said, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't like you. I don't care for you. I want nothing to do with you. This business of, uh, of, of seekers and everything like that. Yeah. That's, not, that's not the way it was. We were not seeking God. We were walking away from him. We were hurling insults at him probably when we were walking away. Or if we weren't doing that, you know what we were doing? We were saying, I think God's irrelevant. I don't even think enough about him that I even cared to hate him. Which is worse? Which is worse? That's what we were doing. We were walking away from him, saying we have no need. Don't need it. Don't want it. Thank you very much. I'm going my own way. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, if I want to do it, and I don't care what God says. That's what we were doing. At that very instant, at that very instant, Christ died for us. That was his choice. That was his, he determined that. That was his deliberate Ascent of the will. So, point number one, love is a choice. It's a deliverance, deliverance sense. We choose. We have to choose to love. We have to choose to love as he loved, as he walked, which meant that we're going to have to love in spite of some things rather than necessarily because of them. Number two, love is, I call it, a litmus test or a genetic marker, if you will. John 13, 35, the Gospel of John says this, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You know, the, the whole field of DNA and genomics and all this sort of thing, it's just growing leaps and bounds. And it was really in the news just this last week when they were talking about doing positive identification on Osama bin Laden by doing DNA analysis. You know, and we, you know, we tend to think that this is really uh, uh, something out of the realm almost of science fiction when you start talking about DNA analysis as so complex. And it's complex. And believe me, I don't understand it. Don't misunderstand me. But just to show you how prevalent it is in our world, today, right now, for $60, for $60, I can take a sample of a, of a cow's hair, from a calf, a baby calf, or a grown cow, whatever I want, I can take a send, just take a clipping of the hair, send it in, and for $60, they can tell me who the parents were. Pretty amazing. For $60, for $40, for $40 now, they, they have what they call a, a 3K SNP test. And this SNPs, they refers to them as SNPs, and they evaluate all these genetic markers of the DNA of this animal. And for $40, with amazing accuracy, from those genetic markers, they can predict not only how the animal will look, but how the animal will perform as it becomes an adult. For $40, they can do that. Remarkable accuracy, and they can do it. Well, guess what? If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim that you are in him, you should have a genetic marker there somewhere. And I don't mean it's in your genes you're born, but you should be identifiable by this, that you have love one for another. This should be a genetic marker. If we could put you under a microscope in that respect, we should find that. 
That's what love is. Love is a litmus test or a genetic marker, I call it. Thirdly, love is an obligation that we have. Romans chapter 13, verse 8, this is out of the NIV, says this, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. You and I, we tend to pride ourselves in thinking that we are very responsible. Our word is our bond. If we make, if we make a commitment that we will repay something, we do it. You can count on me. If I said that I'm going to pay you that, if you lend me that money or you lend me that, that, uh, that tool or a piece of equipment or something like that, depend on me, you're getting it back. That's my word. I honor my obligations. Right? Most of us in here would say that very same thing. Love is an obligation, according to Romans 13.8, that cannot be discharged. We have a continuing debt to one another. You know, over, over the last three or four years, millions of homes, you know, have been foreclosed upon. And the reason they've been foreclosed upon is, you know, people are out of work. They, they, they had some personal catastrophe in their life. They simply can't make the payments. And so the home has been foreclosed and it's been taken away from them. We have a continuing debt I owe you. You owe me. You owe me to love me. I owe you the same thing. I owe it to you. And Romans 13.8 says it's a continuing debt. It can never be discharged. It's what I would refer to it this way. The debt that I owe to you or you owe to me, all the best I can do is an interest-only payment principles that ever gonna it's just gonna stay the same. It'll be from now until the day I die and I'll be making interest only payments. That's the best I can do. But I still owe you the principle. I still owe that to you to love you. You owe it to me. Well John goes on in verse ten. Again first John two He says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And by that, we can assume that, guess what? If we hate our brother, there is cause of stumbling with us. Interestingly enough, this word for stumble comes from a Greek word, scandalon, which is the word we get uh, the root for our word scandal. Because a scandal... Our Lord said in Matthew chapter 18, verse 7, He says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. You see, when we hate our brother, when we hate our sister, we cause others to stumble. We create a scandal, if you will. Who do we cause to stumble if we hate our brother or our sister? Only two groups of people are out there, those that are believers and those that are unbelievers. And you know what? If we have hatred, if we have ill will, if we have malice toward our fellow brother and sister, we cause believers to stumble. Many of us in this room have personally experienced a, a, a church body that has been ripped apart through petty argument and, and infighting and bickering and so on and so forth. 
We've witnessed that tragically. We've seen that firsthand. And you know what? What happens? Now, there's some that just throw their hands up and say, I'm out of here. I'm I'm out of here. I'm going to go find, I'm going to go to another church. And they, you know, know, start attending another church and, and incorporate themselves into that. But there's a whole group of people that say, I'm out of here and I'm going nowhere. I'm abandoning the church. This is, I'm out of here. I've had enough. All this petty bickering and arguing and whatnot, I've had it. And they quit altogether. And you know what kind of peril they are put in when they're out on their own. We understand that. It creates a scandal. It causes a stumbling block for those that are believers. For those that are unbelievers, guess what? What kind of impression does that make on them? <laughs> you know, they, they says, you know, I got my problems. Why in the world would I want to get involved in something like this where there's even more problems? Why? Tell me why. You know, when these guys claim to be Christians, why would I want to be a Christian if that's the way they behave? You know, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he talked about how we're not to sue one another. We're not to take each other to court. And, and Paul says, in front, of, uh, in front of unbelievers. Many times the judge is an unbeliever, the juries are going to be unbelievers. We're going to take, I'm a believer and I'm going to take you to court in front of a, in front of a, a, a judge like that, this unbeliever. We air our dirty laundry in front of unbelievers. That should never be. That should not be. That's going to cause, that's going to cause stumbling, cause a scandal, if you will, in the unbeliever's eyes. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a tragic, tragic thing. And, and, and what it makes it so senseless is because what are these, what is these bickerings and infightings usually about? Are they about major doctrinal issues? About the, the, the foundations of our faith? Absolutely not. If it's, a, if it's a major doctrinal issue, we set our feet in concrete and we will stay you know, forever. We will not bend or break in that area. Most of these things are about petty personal agendas. I would like to have it done this way or that way or something like that. They're not about important things. And what we lose sight of, we lose sight of at that time, is what really it's all about. And what it really is all about, if you say you're in him, if I say I am in him, what it really is all about is making Jesus look good. That's what it's about. We need to make Jesus look good. We call it about glorifying God. You can express it that way. Make Jesus look good. Does Jesus look good when we take somebody to court? Does Jesus look good in front of others if we are bickering and fighting and insisting on having our own way? Because it's, you know, my way is better. Are we making him look good? That's a rhetorical question that's answered no to, isn't it? Well, at this point, you might be saying, you know what? I love everybody. There is nobody I don't love. In fact, every one of you in here, I, I love the brothers and the sisters. I get along with everybody. There's, that's not a problem. What message is this for me? 
What can I take away from this? Now, I don't know if there's actually anybody that would say that, but if you did and if it were true, I still have something for you. Verse 11 says, But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You see, hatred, ill will, malice blinds us. We don't know where we're going. But the thing is, is it's not just hatred or ill will or malice toward our brother or our sister that blinds us. It's sin in general. It blinds us. We don't know where we're going. Now you say, well, that's not, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not walking in the darkness. If you say that, then I have to take you back to chapter 1 of 1 John and take you to verse 8. And it says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the fact of the matter is this. The best of us, me, you, all of us, we spend some time, more time than we should, walking in the darkness. We do. That's a fact. We walk in the darkness. And when we are walking in the darkness, we don't see where we're going. Because it's, John says, because the darkness, the sin, has blinded our eyes. Now, it's one thing to be blind. You know, that's tragedy. I don't think anyone in here is blind actually themselves. But that's a tragedy when, when a person is actually physically blind. But it could be much worse. It could be much worse because the one who is actually physically blind, if I take my glasses off, I make a pretty good, you know, pretty good replica or whatever you would say of someone that's blind. But the one who is really blind knows that. He knows they're blind. And he knows, you know what? If I'm going to... If I'm blind and I've got to walk down these stairs right here, I'm going to get one of you to come help me. If I'm blind and I'm going to try to walk out of here, I'm going to have a cane. I'm going to have some, I'm going to have some kind of help that helps me navigate where I need to go. The kind of blindness that we're talking about is even worse than that because people don't, we don't realize we're blind. We are blind and we think everything is just fine. Acuna Matata, ain't no worries. We're, 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 we're go- Everything is good. Now, tell me you have not seen someone you know that is walking in darkness and is headed toward the edge of the cliff and doesn't know that they are. Tell me you've never seen that. And we see it, don't we? From, the, from, the, from our perspective, we say, what in the world is that person doing? Sin blinds us. I have a friend of mine right this very moment who's walking in darkness and he th- he's headed toward the precipice. He's headed off the edge of the cliff and despite me talking to him and showing him this, this is a bad idea. You're walking in darkness. It, it, it's against God's word. He thinks everything is fine because sin has blinded him. Sin blinds you. Sin blinds me. Don't think that somehow that we can beat the odds. That, that somehow, oh, yeah, no, I, I'm sure I'll be fine. Everything is going to be okay. Don't count on it. Sin blinds us. We don't know where we're going. 
And we're headed for, for peril if that's where we're going. If we're walking in darkness, and we walk in the darkness, each one of us. Well, sin blinds. We've seen it, but I want to say this, there is hope. And I want to mention a person that was in the news again this last week. And it's not that I want to pick on this person. I don't at all. In fact, I want to kind of commend him at this point. This is a person that's, that's well known to us person who who professes to be a brother in the Lord and I would say that I believe him I believe he is a brother in the Lord and the person that I want to talk about to demonstrate this perfectly is John Ensign and we all know what you know what scandal John Ensign was involved in over the last couple of years and and John Ensign initially after this all came to out in the open and and he is doing the typical politician kind of thing that says oh you know this really wasn't a violation of ethics and he is just trying to whitewash the whole thing and and uh, you know just to just kind of make it slide along and everything's going to be okay and I'm going to keep going on and so on and so forth John Ensign was unrepentant at that point in time. John Ensign wasn't acknowledging that he was walking in the darkness. Now, this last week, he formally resigned from the Senate, and that was a, that was a news item that largely went unnoticed, but it did, it did make a little bit uh, uh, of a splash, if you will, in some of the local, local news shows, and they played excerpts of his resignation speech. And so I wanted to quote something from John Ensign himself. I believe John Ensign has now repented and sees that he was walking in the darkness. And he said this. He said, this is a quote. He would want, in fact, he wanted you to know, he, this was a public thing. I'm not gossiping. I'm saying something good about him that, that we need to recognize. And if it's true of him, it can be true for us as well. And that is this. He says, quote, I was blind about how arrogant and self-centered I had become. My urge to believe in my own self-importance was stronger than the power I had to fight it. And he would go on and tell what a hard lesson it was. But he would also go on and say, that he praised, praised God, that he was a God of mercy and forgiveness. You see, you and I are going to take our walks in the darkness. We're going to be walking there from time to time. But there is great encouragement, and we find that in chapter 1 of 1 John. And this was, a, this was a scripture that was drilled into my head time after time after time after time. And it's one of God's greatest promises for us. Understanding that we, you and I, will walk in the darkness. In chapter 1, verse, eight, it's, verse 9, I'm sorry, it says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to cleanse us. From all unrighteousness. See, John Ensign, John Ensign finally came to that point where he realized he was walking in the darkness and he knew he needed forgiveness. And forgiveness is available at any point in time for each one of us. If it was true for John Ensign, it's true for you and me. We walk in the darkness from time to time and we don't know where we're going. Those around us will see, hey, this guy's headed for trouble. You know. Thing is, if love is as I defined it to be, the conscious choice to desire the greatest good for another, 
that places responsibility or burden upon us for those that are in our world, those that are in our sphere, those that are our friends, those that we know of. If we see them walking in darkness and we see them heading off the cliff, you know, we need in love to let them know that. We don't, what's, what should we do? Stand back and say, well, I wonder how far he's going to get. That's what we do, huh? That's what we do sometimes. No. If we say that we have love for one and we desire the greatest good for that person, you know, we need to come alongside. Guess what? You've been put in certain people's lives. Only you, only you, only you, only you. There are certain people that only you can talk to, that only you understand, that only you have some sort of rapport some sort of relationship with and god has placed you there for a reason you you not somebody else you need to gently in love you know, tell the person hey you're, you're walking off the cliff you need to step back and take a look well i want to close this week this uh, message this way and you know how do we grade ourselves how good are we doing walking as he walked in this matter of loving loving our brothers and loving our sisters. Well, I think we look at you know, we look, I think we look at the events and I say events plural the last three years or so, when this church has been under siege, the way I look at it, the countless, almost countless assaults upon this church through illness and death. Got to the point, I called Rochelle up at the office one day, and she says, I'm getting to the point where I'm afraid to answer the phone. One thing after another. How did you guys respond? You responded with love. You get high marks. You made Jesus look good. You made Jesus look good. How's the genetic marker? Does that look good in you? If I examine you, if we put you under the, under the microscope, would that look good? I think for most it would. I think for most it would. You know, the jury, I'd say, is still out on loving those in spite of the way they are. You know, face it, look around you. You know, 99.9% of you are easy to love. There's not a problem. It's not difficult. It's not hard. God has, God has put us together in such, in, in such a way that you're easy to love. You know, you're going to, I are going to run into those, you know, that are stubborn and cantankerous and so on and so forth. But it's the rarity. We don't get much opportunity to prove we're good at that. And that's a good thing. But it will come. It will come. And we have to remember what the important thing is. We've got to make Jesus look good. And so we need to love that person that's hard to love. And lastly, how about this? How are you doing about fulfilling your obligation to love one another? I will remind you that you are still making interest-only payments. It's got to continue. It's got to, it's got to go on. You'll never, love's a debt. He will never discharge. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you that you've loved us, that you've loved me. Why? It wasn't that I was good or, or uh, didn't have virtue, all these things that weren't there. You somehow consciously chose me, and I'm grateful for that. I thank you for uh, all those here. Uh, they're such a great encouragement to me, and I know many others. We're encouragement one to the other, and thank you that you've put us together in this body, this body that loves one another, that cares for one another, that uh, that uh, laughs with each other and cries with each other. We thank you that you've done that, and you've made it possible. It's uh, all because of what your son did. Yeah, we're united in him, and that's that's the common thread that holds us together, and we're grateful for that. And we just pray now again... Uh, uh, for those struggling with uh, with events in their lives, um, we just pray an extra special of mercy and grace for those. And we'll just praise you that you are a God that forgives us, that when we confess to you, uh, that you can take us out of the darkness and, and, and put us back in the light. And we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.